Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, just a quick reminder at the top of the show that this is a listener-supported program. If you like this podcast, if you listen regularly, and you would like to throw a couple of bucks in the hat, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. You can also donate via PayPal if that's easier for you. There's a link in the sidebar at the show's official website, other PPL.com. All right, let's get started. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jeez, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Hey, everybody. Right. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California. This is the Other People Podcast. Welcome to the Other People Program. I'm very pleased today to have Jonathan Saffron Four as my guest. His novel, Here I Am, is now available in paperback from Picador. He and I are going to be in conversation momentarily. We had a very good talk. I'm excited to share it with you. Before I get there, I do want to read some mail from listeners. A listener named Stephanie writes, Dear Brad, you're not alone about Trump. I'm totally obsessed. It's affecting my life in negative ways. I need a 12-step. Just this week, per the advice of my therapist, where I am not advancing toward my own self-actualization because I scream about Trump, NSA, Russian meddling, Paris climate, I deactivated Facebook and took all social media apps off of my phone. I can't deal. I can't deal at all. I keep refreshing my news feed to... What? I think I want to see him resign or impeached. I want to witness the moment. He has turned this country into a reality show. He has won. We've let him win because he's all we talk about. I can't deal. Weirdly, I listened to an archived Other People episode the other day... And I was like, oh yeah, I forgot what life used to be like before a fucking fascist became our president. That's all, thanks. Love your show. Signed, Stephanie. And then rather to, uh, than respond immediately to Stephanie's email, I'm going to uh, read a different letter from a listener named uh, CB, or who goes by the initials CB. CB writes, Dear Brad, you asked to hear from some listeners about your attention to politics. A little goes a long way for me. In addition to hearing about writing and the writing life, I listen to other people to get away from politics. I have either fast-forwarded through significant portions of the last several interviews 
or stopped listening altogether due to your political ramblings, which do not add to my own knowledge of the political climate. You and I are quite similar in terms of political leaning, so my annoyance is not about political differences. Also, please lay off the alcohol during interviews. The recent one in which you were drinking scotch is my least favorite of all the podcasts I have listened to. Even before you spoke about the scotch later, I thought there was something quote-unquote off about that one. Before I quit listening, I just thought it was your guest. Don't wish to sound hateful. It's just that when you're good, you're great. You set the bar high for yourself and us listeners. Signed, CB. So thank you to Stephanie. Thank you to CB for writing, offering uh, differing, you know, differing insights into the recent trend on the podcast of talking about politics. It's something that I uh, do have some concern about. And yet it feels like the elephant in the room. I don't understand how to have a conversation with anybody these days without talking about it. It almost, it can, it can almost feel irresponsible to not bring it up. It seems very serious, very grave, very time sensitive. And yet at the same time, uh, in the midst of all of this, uh, tumult and danger or whatever you want to call it, there does need to be a place for people to get away. There do need to be conversations that stray from that particular line of thinking. So I can understand that logic as well. So I guess the best I can tell you is that I will try to strike some sort of happy median. I'll try to, you know, I'll try to let it come out of the conversations naturally rather than trying to shoehorn it in. I think Jonathan and I talk about it briefly, but it's not a huge part of the conversation you're about to hear which may be a relief to some of you. I should also say with regard to the scotch episode, that's the only time other than the holiday episodes that I have ever imbibed while on the microphone. But this was just a couple of days after my dog, Walter died unexpectedly uh, after choking on a bagel. So I was in a state of mourning, I think. And I was also very tired Amelia came over, Amelia Gray, my guest, uh, she and I are buddies here in LA and it was her third appearance on the program. She brought, you know, she brought a bottle of scotch. What was it? What was I to do? And what's interesting about that is that, uh, you know, I tend to hear about all episodes from listeners via email or Twitter or whatever it is. And the Amelia Gray episode in which she and I both drank a decent amount of scotch I received word from listeners that that was among their favorite episodes to a degree that distinguished itself. Got a lot of positive feedback on that, but uh, CB disagrees. What I can tell you generally is that that is going to be the exception rather than the rule. I can't be intoxicated and host this show with any degree of uh, success, I would imagine, especially if I'm talking to somebody with whom I don't already have uh, a friendship. I think Amelia was unique in that way because she and I are buddies. But I'm not going to sit here and drink scotch and talk to Jonathan Saffron for. <laughs> or maybe I should. I don't know. I think my inclination is to do this sober. I think I have to have my wits about me. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, 
a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So having said that, let's get to the interview, shall we? This is my conversation with Jonathan Saffron for his uh, latest novel, Here I Am, is now available in paperback from Picador. It happens to be the official June selection of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Had a great time talking with him. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jonathan Saffron Four. I am in a hotel in Madison. Um, can't remember the name of the hotel. Let's see here. I probably have it written down. It's enough that I remember I'm in Madison. The, the Madison Concourse. Okay. How long have you been on tour? Not long at all. About three days. Okay. And it's, it's, in fact, not going to be a super long tour, but um, I'm already to the point. When I got off the plane today, I, I came from Pittsburgh by way of Chicago. Um, so I had a transfer in Chicago and very, very early flight, totally disorienting. And I fell asleep on the flight between Chicago and Madison. And when I got off the plane, I was walking around the airport. It's like, what happened? What? It's, where is everybody? It, it felt like it was in a, in a kind of post-apocalyptic, like Will Smith type movie. You know, like nobody was there and there's nobody in any of the stores and nobody was in line to get food. And then I remembered I was in, in Madison, right. not in Chicago. I thought I was still in O'Hare. <laughs> well, I mean, it's so, funny. Whenever I talk to authors who are uh, on like the paperback leg of uh, a book tour, a book promotion or whatever, I always worry that like you're talked out, like you've said everything you could possibly say about the book at this point, you've thought about it, you wrote the thing, obviously, and then, um, you know, you, you do all the press and everything that, that goes along with publishing a book. Uh, do you, do you feel exhausted at this point with this book? Are you ready to put it behind you? No, not at all. In fact, I find it, uh, I have more, God, I don't know. So, you know, the the hardback tour happens not very long after you finish the book, six months, something like that. But even in those six months, you're doing copy editing and well, you're just engaged with the book in a, in a very direct way. The paperback tour, I've now had, I don't know, nine months of distance and perspective. And in a, in a funny way, I'm able to see the book. Um, as I couldn't when it came out and find myself with, with more to say, not less to say. So what, what's changed? You know, like what about the book do you see differently now? I think I can, I can read it rather than just be the writer of it. Um, you know, I was looking through it two days ago before I had to do my first reading 
And I'd just forgotten lots of it um, on the sentence level, on the paragraph and page level, on the plot level, um, and was sort of surprised and surprised in such a way that I was able to question it. You know, when you finish a book, there's a kind of inevitability to it. Like, it seems like that was the only way it could have gone. Even when you're making big decisions and you're aware of that, it's still, it has some kind of quality of inevitability. And I would never ask a question like, you know, I wonder why that character did that. I find those kinds of questions while writing to be really counterproductive and sort of anti-creative because they just engage a part of the brain for me that is self-conscious um, and is maybe good at evaluating, but is not good at making things. But now with this perspective, this time and distance, I can ask those questions like, hmm, it's interesting that Jacob would have done that there, that uh, Julia would have said this thing that seems out of character. And then that inspires a line of thought or, you know, interpretation that is probably something closer to what a reader um experiences when when moving through the book did you, did you ever get like uh did you ever find yourself thinking like hey this is pretty good who is like who is this guy <laughs> um maybe some version of that i don't really know that i think in terms of good and bad sometimes i'll think in terms of surprising or not surprising you know most of the things that i read whether i write them or someone else writes them i just you know, I remember when I was um, when I was just a little boy, like I was, let's say four, something like that. Um, my mom would sometimes take me with her when she went shopping. Um, if she had to like get a dress for, I don't know, she, my mom didn't go shopping a lot, but if she had to get a dress for something, she would sometimes take me with her, and she'd just you know pull me into the changing room, and this was at like Lowman's or one of these places where they just had one massive changing room not like individual changing rooms and not individual stalls just a big open coliseum style changing room and there'd be like you know 20 women all undressing i was four what did i know or care but i knew enough or cared enough to be a little bit embarrassed you know i was aware enough that my presence was odd right and i happen to remember when in that room they piped in music, you know, through the speakers. And so I would focus on the music and sometimes even focus on the speakers themselves. And I remember the feeling that I could anticipate what the next notes or bars would be, even if it was a song that I'd never heard before. And I even convinced myself that I could something like control the music. You know, it sounds weird, but as a kid, I would hear some piece of classical music and I would think like ah here it's going to go up and here it's going to go down and here it's going to get quiet so oftentimes when I read I have a feeling like that like I don't know what the next word is going to be but I can like more or less anticipate what the next the next little bit is going to hold you know just on the sentence level everyone can do it you just sentences are almost always familiar almost always follow a form which is why 
you know, you can interrupt somebody when they're you're having a conversation because you know how the sentence is going to be finished and why when reading, you can sometimes find yourself skimming because it's not actually necessary to go through every word. Well, so I imagine, I imagine then as a reader, you must, um, cherish writers who do surprise you. Absolutely. And that's maybe what I mean when I say something's good. Um, when it's being delivered to me, I don't necessarily care for like originality for originality's sake, but it feels, how can I put it? It's not, it's not, um, originality is necessary, but not sufficient for good writing. Like I can never really get into writing that isn't, that doesn't surprise me. Um, but the surprise itself is not necessarily enough. So, you know, I, like a writer like Pynchon, for example, I don't, I'm not really into, um, despite the fact that he would regularly surprise me, um, because it's that writing to me lacks another component that I care a lot about, which would, you know, in that case, maybe kind of emotional investment. And then there are other writers who have, you know, who can be emotionally compelling and can write in a way that's surprising, but are not maybe thought provoking in a way that's necessary for me to really engage with it. Anyway, my, my only point is you were asking me if when I read my stuff, I ever say like, wow, that's good. I don't, but I do sometimes find myself surprised in a way that I like that pleases me. Yeah. And I, you know, I was reading about, um, I think I was reading an interview you did and you were talking about your career and, uh, you know, your, your various books. And you said something that struck me. You said, I've yet to write a book that I plan to write. Yeah. Well, I've written one actually, which was eating animals, that nonfiction book, but, um, I've had to sell, not had to, I've been lucky enough to sell, I don't know, three or four books on, on three books, maybe on proposal. And the proposals never correspond to what I write. I just, I, sometimes have what I think is a good idea, but it turns out it's either not as good as I thought or it's just not sustainably good. I can't care about it. I can't be devoted to it over time. And, you know, my process is pretty open. I, I'm not worried. This may, this may be part of why it takes me so long or has started to, but I'm not all that worried about an outcome, you know, either in terms of time or in terms of destination. Uh, I find that when I do worry about an outcome, when I say, ah, but it's got to be, I, I had thought it was going to be about this. This would be a great idea. I just lose a kind of interest in it or at the very least that certainty or devotion to an outcome precludes stumbling upon things. And it's the stumbling upon that I love, really love. And that enables me to transcend my own crappiness, you know? Like, I'm not really capable of writing something that I think is good on purpose. But I am capable of writing something that I think is good or that I'm proud of by accident. So I have really slowly understood that and also slowly come to understand how I can 
put myself in the way of accidents, you know, how I can use a process that encourages rather than discourages stumbling upon things. Oh, so what, so what is that? Like, I guess two questions come to mind. First of all, like, is there a traceable consistency in your novels that, um, you can see where, uh, in all of them, there was a point in the process, like second draft, third draft or whatever, when you started to actually find the thing, you know, that whatever it was that deviated from the proposal. Um, and then secondly, you, you talk about a process that puts you in the way of these kinds of happy accidents. Like what, uh, is there something specific you can talk about there with, you know, with regard to how you do that? Yeah. So, well, let's do the second thing first. It's basically just by, by not aiming myself. Um, so, you know, when I begin, I can tell you a little bit about how I work on a day-to-day level. I mean, I, I don't really necessarily work on a day-to-day <laughs> level, but when I, when I work, usually what I'll do, and I only really figured this out maybe with this book, um, I will sit down at a screen and I'll just sort of question quickly. Like I'll, I'll drop the bucket into my head and see what comes up. I will just say, what, what, what's there right now? What am I, what am I thinking about? What am I thinking about for no reason, for no good reason? Oftentimes it's an image or a thing. So like if right this second I were to try to do it in this hotel room, um, I happen to have just, you know, I might glance around the room and, you know, what's in this room? There's like uh, one of those weird um, lumbar Aeron chairs. There's a bad TV set. There's like a little coffee machine. There's a sprinkler in the wall. And say, ah, oh, well, the sprinkler in the wall, that's sort of interesting you know it's got i don't know why but something about it is kind of interesting to me and so i'd say all right let me think about that for a minute how does that work what might be interesting is it interesting that without my being able to see them i know that there are pipes running all through you know the walls of the entire building just ready to spray when the time comes is it interesting to imagine the room flooded is it interesting to you know what what where where what is interesting about it? maybe i'll do a little bit of reading or quick research about it maybe i'll just let my mind wander whatever the case i won't i won't question why i won't question if it's interesting i would only question why it's interesting and i'll try to put together like a page or two just something just write something about it not worrying if it has anything to do with the book that i'm working on then once I feel like I've reached some small point of rest with that, I go back to the beginning of wherever I am in the novel or, you know, sometimes I'll go all the way back to the beginning. Sometimes I'll go to the beginning of the last chapter, but I'll give myself a good amount of reading and I'll just move forward through it, editing as I go. Um, so I don't really do drafts of books. I kind of just am perpetually editing as I work. And so let's say I have 20 pages in the chapter. So I'll go through those 20 pages and edit them. And then I'll try to push forward another page or two so I can get up to 22 pages. And then when the workday is coming to an end, 
I'll go back to the thing that I wrote at the beginning of the day about the sprinklers. And then I will wonder what, what it is about. Like, did that actually have any use? What was the point of that? Often it has no use. It's just a bizarre page or two about sprinklers, but often it has everything to do with what I was working on Hmm. in a way that I couldn't have planned or anticipated and inspires a kind of very, very happy aha moment. Like, Oh my God, that's so odd. I've been writing about, uh, you know, whatever Noah's Ark or I've been writing (laughs) about, uh, Odysseus or I'd been writing about dying of thirst or I'd been writing about buildings that are immolated and Dresden, you know, whatever. And I'll just realize it has something to it. So, you know, in my experience, you just don't think of things for no reason. Like the subconscious is really active and really interesting. It's not, it's not always understandable. Sometimes it's opaque and you just, you know, oftentimes I'll write something and I'll think, I know this has something to do with something, but I just can't figure it out. And then I put it to the side and maybe one day I do figure it out. Maybe one day, maybe I never figure it out. But I think people have thoughts for reasons and the reasons I'm talking about like thoughts that aren't responsive, like when you're not in a conversation or, you know, watching the news or something, but just self-generated thoughts. Um, I think we're, we're working things out inside and some, some of that working out is conscious. A huge amount of it is not. And, um, but it's always happening. And if something, if I find myself thinking about something, my assumption is there's some good reason. Um, and the kinds of novels that I'd like to write are just vessels for whatever I'm working out, you know? So they have maybe, they obviously take place in a certain time. They have a context, they're culturally specific, they have characters, they have a plot. But that's not really what's important. You know, what's important is the way that all of those things are vehicles for expressing this process of working something out. It's not the case that whatever I'm working out could be articulated in a sentence or two. You know, like, well, here I am, I was working out what devotion is, or I was working out what home is. You know, I find myself saying things like that just because they're convenient answers to questions, um, but not necessarily because it's true. Um, usually the working out is just the book itself. You know, if somebody says, uh, can you tell me what you were trying to say with this book? Uh, I can't really point to anything but the book itself. You know, that is the expression of what I was trying to say. Well, yeah, I mean, it's another thing that you that you said, I think, in a past interview that struck me is – uh, you know, because this book has uh, a lot of resonances with your own life. It's it's at least, I mean, uh, all artwork is autobiographical, but I think there's definitely some overlap. Um, and you said that I would say it's not my life, but it's me. And that strikes me as a good way to put it. Well, it feels honest. Um, it feels honest with this book in particular, I felt it kind of, you know, one can choose to believe me or not, but it's, it's not autobiographical in the sense of corresponding to events in my life. I did get divorced. I am Jewish. I have two brothers and there's three brothers in the book, but I wasn't drawing upon 
personal experience or events when I, when I wrote the book, obviously it's more than a coincidence, you know, that I would write about those things, but I wasn't writing about them autobiographically, but, um, I did feel a closeness to this book that I didn't feel with my other books. I felt I took it more personally, I guess you would say. Um, and I've wondered why that is. It may be just, I don't know, as I get older, I take everything more personally. Um, I probably even feel closer to everything, but I think a lot of it is that the book is in the third person. You know, my first two books have very strong first person narrators. The first book has Alex, who's, you know, very, very powerful guy presence, very muscular. And the second book has Oscar. And this book, while it has, you know, a hero, it's, it's told almost entirely in the third person. And that, you know, then the question is like, well, who is that third person? Because in this case, it's not a kind of like characterless or dispassionate third person. There's a very strong sensibility, a kind of specific sense of humor, way of thinking about things. And um, I felt like it was mine. And this is the first book I've written where friends have said to me, like, oh, it really sounds like you, um, which is neither a good thing nor a bad thing. But well, it's and, different. For me. And there was a it was about a decade between books, which I know you've talked about a lot. Um, and I'm curious to know, you know, you, like you, you just talked about how this book is in the third person, whereas your first, uh, you know, the, the other two novels are in the first. Uh, was there a conscious decision on your part to want to move away from uh, the style or tone or kind of novels that you uh, worked on earlier in your career? Like, did you want to challenge yourself to do something new or was this just, uh, you know, the end result of an organic process and this is how it turned out and it wasn't something that was super conscious? It was not super conscious, you know, it was not, I don't do super conscious things very often when I write novels. I try not to. And in fact, I'm kind of stuck right now because I find myself in that mode of thinking and it's kind of frustrating the creative process. I don't remember ever saying that I wanted to write a third person book. I don't remember ever saying, I mean, I, I can notice all kinds of differences between this and my previous two books. Um, it's in certain ways, less charming, probably it's a little uglier, a little sexier, a lot more domestic. Um, it's of course longer and it's in the third person. Um, it's more adult. Um, none of those things were a conscious choice, but it may be that they're all just pretty straightforward reflections of how I've changed in my life, or how my life has changed around me. And I, I want to talk to you about uh, the HBO show. You were, yeah. you were working on uh, a show for HBO that was greenlit. Uh, I believe what Ben Stiller and Scott Rudin were involved. So this is like a high profile show that was going to happen and it bore some similarities to here I am. Am I, am I mistaken in that assessment? No, no, that's true. I mean, there, there are probably more differences than similarities, but there were some similarities. Yeah. Okay. And then you wound up killing that project. Like you decided that this wasn't for you. 
somewhere close to the beginning of production, which is, uh, which was, I'm sure a difficult decision and, and came with, uh, you know, uh, stresses. So can you talk a little bit about that decision? Like why you made it? Uh, because I know that that decision preceded the bulk of the work on here. I am, you sort of made that decision and then turned to this novel and it came out of you relatively quickly after that. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I really loved that material and I liked the people I was working with and it had nothing to do with, it was a, it was a kind of straightforward and in certain ways boring decision that was, had to do with just the kind of life I wanted to live and how I wanted to spend my time. Um, I like having freedom in the way that I do. I like, um, you know, making my own schedule. I like not having to turn in work at regular intervals unless I'm ready. I sometimes like collaborating, but I don't know that I could have survived that degree of collaboration. Um, you know, just so many different people involved, actors, directors, showrunners, HBO, producers, it's just, it's a lot. And for some people, it's like the greatest time imaginable. You know, there's, HBO has a line around the block of people who want to be showrunners for them or show creators for them. And I get it. Like, I can see how that would be incredibly fun, but it just wasn't for me, maybe because I'd had too much experience with another kind of life. But so I spent about two years writing the show and I wrote it in, in almost as I would write a novel, very much in solitude. I had Scott Rudin and his, his partner, Eli Bush. I worked on it with them and that was different than novel writing, but it was really quite wonderful. It was as much fun as I've had as a writer. But then as the show became a reality, you know, that it was actually going to get made, I suddenly and really quickly had to face the prospect of how the process would change and how my life would change. There's thing I just wasn't prepared for maybe because I didn't think the show was going to get made because so few <laughs> do. I just never thought that far ahead. I didn't enter into the process because of some kind of strong choice. Scott Rudin had approached me and said, do you want to adapt this material that I own? And I said, no, I'm not really interested in adapting. And fine. We got off the phone and then he called me back and he said, well, um, do you want to write something original? I said, sure. I don't know. Why not? I'll try it. And that very casual sure ended up, um, really like determining my next two years, two and a half years, but it wasn't enough to get me into the next phase of, uh, what the show would have been. So was there, uh, were there hard feelings when you wound up making the decision to pull the plug on it? I don't know. Um, I don't think so, but I don't know. I'm not sure that, um, I'm not sure anybody. No, I, I, they weren't terribly hard. Let's put it like that. Yeah, I mean, they have so many projects, right? They can find something. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. Um, and I think there was some. I think there's some recognition that it was probably the right 
choice that I, you know, you have to be pretty profoundly dedicated to make that work. It has to be your dream. Mm-hmm. It really has to be your dream. And it just wasn't mine. And so it made me that in the end, they recognized that I, you know, I was also sparing them as, as well as myself. And so after that decision, you then turned to the writing of Here I Am uh, in earnest and wrote, you said, I think it's about two thirds of it, you said, um, relatively quickly in the year that followed. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, you know, the main thing that I borrowed from the show was this um, an infidelity that was discovered on a cell phone. The, the character is quite different. He was a rabbi, actually, in the show. But there was that sort of initiating crime, let's say. And so I moved that over into a novel and sort of started working on it. And I'd also had an idea, which was not in the show, of um, an earthquake in the Middle East. And I just became... Interesting. The earthquake was not, by the way, so unlike the sprinkler that I was talking about before. Just like earthquake. Interesting. Let's think about that for a while. And then the ways as I worked on it, that it resonated with this marriage. Just, I don't know, it rang a bell in me. Hmm. You know, it strikes me as I listen to you talk is that your creative process and maybe everyone's creative process to greater and lesser extents is reliant upon a certain kind of freedom and sense of play. Um, like you, it seems like you have to in, you kind of enforce this upon yourself, you know, by doing this like warm up writing exercise, uh, where you're noticing things in the room or whatever it is and, and working from the subconscious. Uh, like it's, it seems like it's kind of impossible for you to generate a novel absent that kind of feeling of freedom and it's almost like childlike uh, playfulness. I think that's absolutely right. Like I just am not capable of, it, it sounds like I'm joking or protesting too much. I'm really not like I'm incapable of doing it on purpose. I just can't. Um, and so I have to find other ways. And um, I mean, you know, at this point, it is doing it on purpose because it's a process that I'm familiar with and it requires, you know, quite a bit of will. And, uh, I sort of, I know my way into it, even if I don't know where it's going to take me. Well, you know, you know, I, I didn't get a chance to ask you earlier too, when you were talking about like the sprinkler example and the resonances that you often find at the end of a writing day, where you realize that the thing that you were free writing about earlier, uh, you know, somehow speaks to what you were working on in the novel. Is it ever the case that you write one of these uh, things, you know, these free writing exercises and then find that you actually can wedge it into the work itself? That I can, you're saying? Yeah. Like, do you ever like, is it oh, almost, no, I'm saying that's where most of my writing comes from. So most of it, so you, you'll wind up wedging the sprinkler scene into the book. Almost, almost always. I mean, if you look at, if you were, to, if, you, if you were to reread here, I am, um, which is no small ask. Um, there's a lot of stuff where you might say, oh, I can see now what, what he's talking about. Like, you know, when I write about something like, um, okay, for example, Jacob has this interest in podcasts and it's a kind of convenient way to bring in a lot of eclectic information. Um, 
and it became a vehicle for me to incorporate that more associative writing, you know, a way to how in the context of a domestic drama can I talk about things like the history of sign language or contingencies for an asteroid coming toward the earth. Um, there are many, many asides like that in the book. Sometimes they come from the mouths of children because kids say things that are off topic. Sometimes they um, will just be presented in a kind of, I don't know, omniscient third person aside. Often they, they were something Jacob had overheard or Jake, you know, not overheard Jacob had heard um, when listening to a podcast. But I would say, you know, especially toward the end of the book, I was using that associative morning material, I don't know, four times out of five, like very often. Hmm. I was going to ask you about the podcast uh, element of the book and also just the, the relationship of the characters to technology, uh, wondering what your thoughts are on it personally. Like I, I imagine you probably listen to a few podcasts. Most people do these days. But uh, do you have like a general sense of where we are technologically? Do you, cons- do you, do you see it um, optimistically? Do you see it as a kind of menace? Is it a combination of both? Well, I think it's like um, it would be very silly to, to, uh, to you know, people, people who see it as good and people who see it as bad. It's just it's naive. Like there's good things about it and there's bad things about it. And it's hard to know where the good and bad begin and end. And good and bad are also probably not exactly the right words. I think I keep wanting to break things down into that dichotomy. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, what feels true to me is that something important is going on. You know, we are changing the ways that we communicate, are changing um, the ways that we think are changing and we don't necessarily have a good way to talk about it um and we're not we're not because we don't have a good way to talk about it we're maybe not exerting as much control over it as we as we maybe should you know all of the control has been left to google and to facebook and to twitter and to these corporations whose ultimate interest, whatever they say, has to be making money. It just has to be. Um, you know, any any corporation whose motto is don't be evil, is that what it is? Yeah, are, yeah that's Google. I mean, that, that really sounds like protesting too much, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. It's the kind of thing that, that should go without saying. Um, do we want to leave to a company whose motto is don't be evil. Um, our modes of communicating with like our children and friends and partners. Do we want to leave to them like the future of our biological composition, you know, which, which is what they're working on and what we're not working on. Um, there's a kind of grossly tilted, playing field. You know, I know a lot of people, I am among them, who oftentimes wish I use technology differently. 
um, used my phone less, emailed less, texted less. Are you on social media? I'm not, no. At all? No. Okay. No. See, that's admirable. Uh, it's, we can get back to that in a second. It's actually not that admirable. But um, but we've no, my only point was like, we're all these, you know, bumbling idiots thinking like, oh, it would be really great if I used it less. Not realizing that on the other side of the screen, there are like dozens and hundreds and thousands of sociologists, behavioral psychologists who are being paid and paid well by these massive corporations to keep us glued. You know, the, in, their entire reason for being is to be looked at and engaged with. And Facebook and Google, they go to great, great lengths to keep us using them more because the more we use them, the more valuable they are. And at the end of the day, they're corporations. But at the end of the day, we're not corporations. We're people. And um, Unless you're Mitt Romney. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Who, who, by the way, these days is looking pretty fantastic. I was going to say, he's like a saint in my mind at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't use social media because I, I don't know. I somehow missed the bus. I, I think I was born in just exactly the right moment when it was – I was born late enough to be pretty – you know, wholly familiar with it, but maybe just early enough not to, to be able to escape it. You know, like I, I don't think my kids could escape it no. whilst part of the culture, whereas I can still be part of the culture and not do it. Yeah. I think we're about to say, what, how old are you? What? 800. Eight, <laughs> I, well, I'm 40, <laughs> well, I'm 41. So I feel like we're generationally similar. So like, man, I'm just 40. Yeah. So, but we, uh, but we had analog childhoods, you know? And so yeah. I think that kind of informs us. I feel like we bridged the, you know, we saw the change happen, but we weren't uh, raised in it. And I think for people who are born into it, where this is just their world, um, it's inescapable. But for me, it still feels, everything still feels like a learning process and somewhat foreign. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was reading and this is going to, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not on Facebook and, uh, the only social media that I use really is Twitter, but I was on Twitter and I was reading a thread, which yep. I read a lot of threads these days. There's a lot of threading happening on Twitter. And, uh, there was one particular thread just yesterday, I think that I read that really, uh, gave me pause and it dealt with, uh, politics, but also uh, the role of technology in our lives and particularly the technology that's coming down the pike with respect to uh, virtual and augmented and mixed reality and the way in which this kind of technology could be exploited to uh, fuck with people uh, yeah. politically and otherwise. And like, I just hadn't really given that much thought, but when you talk about corporations and how they're you know, they're designed to make money and that's what they, that's what they have to do, or that's what at least they think they have to do. Uh, you think about political entities and how they are sort of inherently designed to preserve or expand their power and how they have already exploited technology to those ends and how they might exploit this new technology to completely mess with people's sense of reality. Like that seems really eerie to me and like something we should pay attention to. <laughs> No shit. Yeah. I mean, especially when the interfaces are inside our, our bodies and are sort of melded with our consciousness. And when 
the lines of our identity start to get a little bit blurry. Um, it's it's it, terrifying, terrifying stuff. It's not to say that there aren't going to be wonderful things as well. It's just it. One thing we can say for sure is it merits a conversation. And I felt this way about you know when I wrote Eating Animals. You know, there are a lot of different outcomes one can reach um, with regard to like factory farming, but we have to agree that it merits a conversation. It's, a, it's an important thing, you know, the, and so I wanted to try to find some way of talking about it that felt at least like I could participate in it. Well, um, it's, it's fraught territory. Like I'm a, I've been a vegetarian for my entire adult life, uh, with like a couple of lapses or whatever, but really have been for 20 something years or whatever. And it, uh, it always feels fraught. It's a weird thing because as soon as you say it, it initiates pretty much the same conversation. I've had it a million times over the years where you're forced to sort of litigate your decision. And, um, I think as a man too, there's something, uh, like there's an, there's an effeminate quality ascribed to, a man deciding to not eat meat. Um, but do you, do you still think that's true? Uh, less so, but I, you know, it depends where you're from. I mean, I'm from the Midwest and I, my parents are from the South. And so it depends where I am. You know, it's not, I live in Los Angeles now. It's no big deal out here, but if I'm, you know, back home in the bayou and I'm sitting at the dinner table and <laughs> you know, everyone's eating whatever, like, you know, turducken or whatever it is. And I, I'm like, I'll just have the the bread, you know, then it suddenly becomes this thing. But, um, I, I don't know. It's, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's a super important conversation to have. And I've always found it kind of mind blowing that it isn't had more often. Um, like nothing seems to me like more of a, uh, what's the word? Like an obvious moral discussion to have than like what we put into our bodies, like, you know, the, the food choices we make, like what the implications of that are. Uh, I think a lot of what we consume food wise is just done unconsciously. And I guess maybe what we consume period is done unconsciously. But, um, I, you know, I appreciated that book and I always appreciate it whenever anyone does a deep dive on that stuff. Cause that it's always resonated with me. Well, I think technology requires like a, a similar dive and it's something I've been trying to find my way into. Um, it's a book I've wanted to write and it's tricky. Like eating animals was tricky, but it's, it's something that I really hope to work on in the next year or two. Well, and, and talking about issues of identity, just to try to kind of tie this back to here I am, but it's something that I thought about as I was reading and as I was preparing to talk to you and, uh, it's it's a matter of uh, of Jewish identity, which uh, you know is is part of the book, but is also interesting to me in the times that we live in now. And I'm not Jewish, so this is not my experience, but I have been observing what is going on um, in our country uh, politically, and I I, I want to ask you, you know, with President Trump and all that he entails uh, being in office. And then he has a daughter who has converted to Judaism. He has a son-in-law who is Jewish by birth. And yet one of his top advisors 
is Steve Bannon. <laughs> and there are all these, you know, part of his base as an alt-right, uh, is this alt-right, uh, you know, contingency, many of whom are uh, very vocal, uh, you know, vocally anti-Semitic, vocally racist, all this stuff. Like, it's a weird stew. And then you watch, like, Benjamin Netanyahu receiving warmly Trump and sort of giving him a, a full embrace. It's a confusing time to be Jewish, I would imagine, or at least like a disturbing one, right? Um, it's an uncertain one, for sure. Um, I don't know how confusing I find it, but I, I mean, I found it, I think, a little more, a little more um, disconcerting a few months ago before Trump revealed himself to be such a uh, uh, you know, a useless piece of shit on top of being a <laughs> piece of shit. Um, there doesn't seem to be any immediate threat of him getting anything in the world done, including changing like the national discourse. So um, that having been said, forget about our country, you know, Europe, um, anti-Semitism is very, very alive and growing, creeping. And it's extremely disconcerting and it's scary. Um, I suppose all of that stuff must have been somewhat on my mind with this book, which is, it's funny when I first, um, gave this book to like friends and a couple of family members, just my first readers. One response I heard a number of times was, wow, it's a really Jewish book. And I was just like, what this book, you gotta be kidding me. I had no idea. I just had no idea. Somehow, Somehow, I was oblivious to that, strange as it must sound. Um, then, you know, when I reflected on it, I, of course, they're right, it is, but it was not on my mind when I was writing it. But the, it sort of returns to the subject from earlier in the conversation. There are a lot of ways that something can be on your mind, you know? Mm. Uh, um, and it was on my mind in a deep way that I wasn't cognizant of which just happens to be the place that i think the writing i end up being most proud of comes from and what about like when the book is published uh you know you're a higher profile you're you're about as high a profile writer of literary fiction as we have and the work that you do generates a lot of review attention uh generates more press than most authors get um particularly in higher profile publications and with this book, I think it kind of invited scrutiny of your personal life and kind of a public dissection of that. Uh, did you pay attention to that? Were you aware of it? Did it affect you? Uh, I, I suppose you probably knew it, it might happen as you were writing the thing. I actually wasn't all that aware of it. I haven't been all that aware of it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I am asked if to, to what extent the book is autobiographical but um i don't it's amazing how if you don't the things that you don't seek can really stop existing but when you're inside of a world it can seem as if it is the whole world um you know when i do i i have no idea what how what people are thinking about and what they know um so you don't Google yourself or anything like that? No. You know, you stay away. Yeah, but it's really easy. 
Yeah. Like, I don't, um, not for everyone. <laughs> it's easy for me. I mean, maybe just as a defense mechanism, it's not, it's not cause I'm a noble person. Right. Um, maybe it's just as simple as it being a defense mechanism. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, like, it's, it's unhealthy regardless to, I think Google oneself. That seems like just inherent. Well, whether it's unhealthy or not, it's definitely unproductive, you know, in like a way that feels pretty straightforward. It just does not help me get anywhere good. Right. Or would not like, it's not going to help me write better. It's not going to help me feel better. What is it going to do for me? Like, hmm. And act a little bit of like anger or jealousy or anxiety. It's just there's nothing. There's nothing there. There's nothing there that I want or need. Right. So let me let me ask you something about this book. Like these are questions that I found myself asking. Um, you, you know, like are any families happy? Uh, are any married couples truly happy? Like what is happiness? Are any people happy? <laughs> like. Uh, that's what I, I find myself puzzling over. Like, is it even possible? What does it mean? Like, did you arrive at any better understanding of that through the writing of this book? No, not at all. I mean, I, I have, I have no idea what other people are like. I don't, you know, a lot of this is definitional. One of my favorite answers to the question, do you believe in God? Was, um, I'm not only agnostic about my answer, I'm agnostic about your question. Like, you know, we can talk about happiness, but it presupposes that we're talking about the same thing. And we're probably not. Like, one person's happiness is another person's misery. So, um, I gave a lot of thought to my own life. I gave a lot of thought to what would make me happy when I have been happy. I'd like to think I was. I consider those things even when I'm not writing about them, but, um, it, it can be a mistake to, um, be overly certain about what's going on in your own life, much less outside of your own life. Yeah. You know, it's funny that I, I just like, uh, just last weekend went to a funeral for a friend's father and, uh, both of her parents died within a year. So the mother died last September and then the father passed away, uh, in May and they were one of these like old married couples that they were truly like just made for each other and in love until the very end, or at least that's how I perceived it. Uh, I'd been around them a lot and they were always like just super sweet to each other. And, um, like their first date was at Disneyland, you know, like, uh, you Fuck can't, them. yeah, right. You can't, you can't, <laughs> you can't write this stuff. And like, and like the, the, the husband like had like the Mickey ears that he got on that first date, like to the very end, like he still cherished them as like, you know. And it just, uh, my wife and I were just like, God, like, I, I want to, like, how do we do this? Like, we got to make sure we're like this, you know? And, uh, but then as you say, like, maybe, maybe that's an overly simplistic assessment. Like, how do I know what it was really like? You know, this is just like kind of an end, end of life assessment. And you're sitting there watching like a slideshow set to music at a memorial service. And, um, uh, I guess that's why we write maybe to try to explore these things in greater depth and imagine, uh, you know, different existences, but I really want to be happy, you know, as a person and as a husband and father and all this kind of stuff. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure you feel much the same and it's, uh, it's challenging and it's, uh, I don't know if like my mind is, is wired for, uh, any kind of certainty, 
You know what I'm saying? Like I always, I think I'm always going to be holding that question. Maybe, maybe most of us are. Well, that may be exactly what precludes happiness. (laughs) (laughs) The, uh, what is it? One of the characters in the book says something that's actually from the Talmud, which is, oh Jesus, those who seek happiness flee contentment. That's what it is. Doesn't that sound just about right? Yeah. Yeah. That pretty much sums it up. So here's a funny question for you. Uh, I've been thinking about you and I have some awareness of your family history just through, you know, doing some prep and just also over the years, like reading interviews or whatever the case. And I'm struck by the level of achievement in your family. Like you have two brothers. Is that correct? You don't have any other siblings. It's, it's three boys, right? Yep. That's right. Okay. All of you are very accomplished. Um, I believe you're the middle and then your older brother is Franklin, um, who was an editor at the new Republic for a long time and has a, you know, has had a distinguished career in journalism. And then your younger brother is also an acclaimed author and like science writer and whatnot. And then you of course are uh, a successful novelist. So like, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is like, how did that happen? Like, what did your parents do? Uh, can we start there? (laughs) Um, it's funny because whenever the three of us talk, we're always talking about just how fucking lazy we are and how disappointed <laughs> we are by our own total lack of effort. Um, I did not come from a particularly intellectual family, a family where the arts were particularly important. We never went to theater. We never went to dance. We never went to music. Uh, my parents worked pretty hard. Both of them worked. And, um, you know, my brothers and I, we just had a very like Washington DC old fashioned childhood, which was we were I say this not as a joke, but we were largely just left to ourselves. You know, we would ride bikes in the neighborhood. We would watch TV. We'd play Atari. We just we were we were just there, and um, um, you know, my parents were extremely non-judgmental, and that must have been good for us. Um, they, I do think, valued creativity not necessarily in like institutionalized ways, but in very domestic ways, things like, um, you know, the birthday invitations to our, to our parties, stuff like that, you know, like little, little opportunities to, to make things, to make them special. But, you know, I don't think that any one of us aspired to write. Um, my older brother just loves history and politics, but, you know, nobody pays you to love history and politics. You have to do something. You have to make something and be have a value in the world. And his value came from being a journalist and being an editor. My little brother just loves to I don't I don't even know how to describe it, just have kind of strange, amazing experiences. Um, but nobody pays you to have strange, amazing experiences. You have to do something with it. Um and so he writes about them. He does. He really does not love writing. Um, and, and for me too, you know, I did not grow up wanting to be 
a writer. I don't. So how did it happen? I mean, you were a philosophy major at Princeton, Joyce Carol Oates. You took a class with Joyce Carol Oates, right? Yeah. And that's where things pivoted for you. Yeah, largely because, you know, well, for a few reasons. One, be precisely because I didn't know what I wanted to do. It was very impressionable. And Joyce um, is persuasive. She's in a, a singular personality. And um, she was the first person ever to encourage me in any direction. And I listened to her. I don't know. I did you know. I, I, I didn't know what I wanted to be and writing and I, there were a lot of things I knew I did not want to be. Um, writing happens to be a kind of great way not to ha choose, you know, like you can maintain a kind of interest in life and in the world and you can, you can, you can change as your interests change. Like, uh, if I become interested in, I don't know medicine um you briefly flirted with a medical career yeah yeah then i could uh you know write about a doctor and spend time with doctors and research that if i become interested in um something else i can allow my imagination to go there but i would say it wasn't until pretty recently that like maybe this book that i thought of myself as um, as writing being the end rather than the vehicle, if that distinction makes sense. Mm -hmm. That you know, I was doing it because I loved books and loved writing, not because of the freedom that it afforded or some other ancillary reason. Well, I and mean, you also went through that TV process. Sometimes I think you have to maybe do things like that uh, where you realize what you don't want in order to get clarity on what you do want and what, and who you are and, and who you are not, you know what I'm Definitely. saying? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's very, very true. I think that saying no to that one thing forced me to say yes to something else. And so like, you know, you take this class with Joyce Carol Oates, you, you really had no, um, predetermined ideas about which direction you were going to be headed professionally, but you must've come into her class and, and you know, you got into Princeton. So clearly you're a smart guy and you were reading a lot. Were you reading a lot of fiction prior to taking her class? Um, I was, although I came to reading a little bit late as well. Like it really wasn't, in, well, I don't know what one considers late, but it wasn't until, um, probably the very end of high school, like my senior year that I picked up books at all by choice. Um, what and then were, I did, what were some big ones? I'm just curious. Uh, just the classics. Like, um, you know, I moved through the kinds of rites of passage books like, um, catcher in the rye and on the road and Siddhartha. Um, and then moved through, the other American classics like, you know, Melville and Hemingway and that I moved into some of the European classics and it was not, it was, uh, it was as if I were reading by a curriculum, but you know, my dad is quite a big reader. And when there's a lot of books on the shelf, at some point one pulls them down. 
And that, that's what I did. And you, I mean, you, you obviously have a, a big talent because you're, you're what in your early twenties, when you take this class with Joyce Carol Oates, and then uh, everything is illuminated is published when you're 25. So there wasn't like a super long apprenticeship. Uh, like how hard did you have to work to get that book to where it ultimately got? Uh, did you have books that you attempted to write, but that didn't work out? Or was that your first go? Well, I would say there was a long apprenticeship in the sense that everything that was illuminated was part of it. You know, and my second book was part of it as well. Um, I was figuring things out with those books. They are not the culmination of anything. Um, yeah, everything that's illuminated was my first book. I did not write a book before that. Um, it was not an easy book to write or finish, but um, it was my first book. Did it surprise you how successful it was? Totally. I mean, especially because I, once I finished it, I, um, tried to find an agent and just everybody rejected it. I don't know, 13, 15 people. I finally found an agent who, um, sent it around to publishers in New York and everybody rejected it. And then she fell ill actually and had to go back to Denmark where she was from. So I had no agent. And I thought, well, I guess this is it, you know? Um, and then I ended up trying once again and my life changed really dramatically and quickly, but it was exactly the same book. Oh, I was going to say, you didn't do anything to it. No, exactly the same book. Hmm. So, you know, first of all, I, I had a good taste of, you know, what it would, of, of not being able to publish, but also I learned this lesson like pretty early on about how incredibly fickle the publishing world is, you know, my, the, the book ended up being bid on by many of the same editors who had rejected it. Why? What happened? Somebody said yes. And then other people suddenly got the, the courage or what is it? I think it's that they read it, you know, like the, there's just these editors get dozens of books every day and they can't read everything. They just can't. And so they end up relying on a kind of almost curatorial system where there are um, agents that they trust. Right. And they'll they'll read what is sent to them by those agents. So did you have... So I happen to have an agent who they really trust, a great agent. Who is the agent? Her name is Nicole Araji. Oh, right, right. Yeah, people will read whatever she sends. Yeah, it seems like it. Uh, but I think you're part of that equation. I think, you know, she helped you, but I think, you you know, the success that you've had has helped her in terms of the way she would do business, I would imagine. Perhaps, yeah. Well, what are you working on now? I mean, are you just on tour? Uh, do you have another book in the pipe? Is it going to be another decade? Do you have any idea? Man, I wish I had a nickel for every time somebody said, is it going to be another decade? <laughs> then, then, then it could be another decade. Um, I don't know. I, I'm working on a couple things right now. Um, two novels and, uh, the, and before that sounds great, let me say that it means nothing in the world to say you're working on a novel. Um, two novels in this nonfiction book about so- somehow having to do with technology I'm interested in. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's a real thing. That was just, uh, that was not just yeah, talk. It's, it's a real thing. Well, I'm glad you're working on that because I feel like, uh, 
I really do feel like we need to have a really deep discussion about it. And it's going to be at least part of the process for writers to, who can really reckon with it to write about it. So that, that sounds very positive. Good. good. And, and, and it will probably be a terrifying book to read. <laughs> I think it might. Yeah. <laughs> right. I really do. Uh, well, listen, uh, I'm grateful for you for or grateful to you for taking the time to talk with me. Congratulations on the paperback publication of here. I am. Uh, I wish you well on these next book, these next book projects and on the rest of your tour. Thank you. Take care. All right, folks, there you go. That's Jonathan Saffron for his latest novel. Here I am now available in trade paperback from Picador. As we discussed, he's not on social media, but there is a uh, dedicated Facebook page for Jonathan Saffron for if you want to track that down. The book one more time is called here. I am. It is the official June pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, thenervousbreakdown.com. For those of you who don't know, is my online literary blog. It has its own monthly book club. If you want to join, go to the nervousbreakdown.com, click on book club in the menu bar. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. If you would like to write to me, if you want to send me an email, let me know your thoughts on the show, tell me a story, what have you. The address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. This podcast has its own app. Did you know that? It's free. Also, all episodes of this program are free. The entire thing is free. Nearly 500 episodes. The best way to listen, if you ask me, is to get the app. Just go to wherever, uh, whatever app store you like, get the app, get it on your phone. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen while you're offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. It's very user-friendly, and once again, it's free. So uh, I'm going to try to find some sort of sane middle ground with regard to political dialogue on this program. I think that makes some sense. I'm not going to go entirely cold turkey and remove those kinds of conversations from the show, but I'm going to try to recede a little bit from making it a centerpiece or a partial centerpiece. It's hard. I don't want to beat a dead horse. I also may have writers on this program as guests who do write about politics explicitly in the days to come so that we can ventilate this a little bit and I can have conversations with people whose knowledge extends far beyond my own uh, mediocre understanding. Try to expand the vocabulary a little bit and get some real insight into people who uh, are truly dedicated to parsing this, have some level of expertise. I feel interested in talking to experts. Like, translate this for me. Make this make sense. Tell me you have sources. There is that impulse, is there not? Somebody's got to know shit. This is going to all work out, right? And then there's also conspiracy theory out there. It can be, like, for the first time in my life, I'm understanding at a, in a deep way of what it is like to be susceptible to conspiracy theory as a form of uh, soothing oneself, as a form of uh, trying to reduce one's anxiety. Still doesn't make it right. So we'll see, right? We'll see what happens. 
Hopefully soon. For me, it's all about time. Can we just get this over with? Just make it go away. I need to stop thinking about this 17 hours a day. All right, that does it for now. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>